On Giddy Up, it's time for the debate. And from the straight.com.au, which is a publication now that is the new go-to for racing fans. Doesn't matter what um, you're looking for if you're a racing fan from uh, the latest news with the breeding industry, wagering, landscape, um, big stories in racing. There's only one publication that you need to go to these days, and that's the straight.com.au. And the man behind that is Brent O'Brien, and he joins us now live from Tasmania. Hello, Brent. Good to be with you, Gareth. Um, there's not really a dull moment in racing these days, is there? No, it's funny. We launched the straight, I think, just three weeks ago today. And um, there's been, well, there were three massive stories that have broken up until yesterday afternoon as you allude to there's probably another one that's coming out overnight but um it's pretty amazing in this industry how the news keeps from rolling there's plenty to write about and um yeah and that's what we're trying to do at the strike get across all these stories and um hopefully give our audience a bit of an insight into what's going on in the you know, broader thoroughbred world and how's it going so far mate a lot of people have um, been in contact with me and you've been on the show the last couple of weeks and they're loving the the new publication the straight.com.au have you you found that you've hit the ground running you jumped three or four links in front since you've launched it? Oh, the feedback's been fantastic. I think, you know, I think what we're trying to do is perhaps provide a little bit more coverage away from the track, I suppose, Gareth. And and, and there's plenty of coverage out there of what happens on the track, but there's, it's a big industry. There's a lot going on and the feedback's been really positive. I think it's it's something that's we, we knew that was it was needed in the industry in terms of just being able to provide that depth and breadth of coverage across all the aspects. And uh, yeah, like the pos- it's very, very positive. Audience response has been positive. The overall numbers are very good. Um, yeah, it's been a great first few weeks and yeah, we just want to build on that through 2024. That's the plan. All right, then 0499 736 736 to join our conversation. We might do our top five stories so far the biggest stories in racing. And we might start with the one that just broke there last night. Now, this is there's been a lot of talk around the racing industry for the last three to four days regarding this story. And it broke last night um, on social media there with the Western Australian um, newspaper. And it's on the front page of the WA paper this morning. And the headline reads, Damien Oliver hires Tom Percy following a fallout with friend and business manager, Neil Pinner, um, retired racing giant Damien Oliver has retained the services of legal titan Tom Percy KC following a major fallout with his long-term client. The article goes on to read and says the pair have been in business and personal um, relationship for decades, including during the tragic death of Mr. Oliver's brother, Jason. Um, it was Mr. Pinner who met the, the devastated Damien on the arrival in Perth following the fall, which eventually claimed to cause his brother's life. It was Mr. Pinner who broke the news to the world that Jason had died, reading a statement outside the Royal Hospital, um, Royal Perth Hospital. He also made a speech at James, Jason's pack funeral. Um, in between those two events uh, um, came perhaps Damien Oliver's greatest victory on board Media Puzzle in the 2002 Melbourne Cup. Mr. Pinner was even portrayed in the subsequent movie, made about that famous day. However, it's understood that Mr. Pinner was not present to witness Oliver's famous farewell on Saturday afternoon. His presence, or lack of it, was also a talking point at other events building up to the Gold Rush race earlier last week. And track insiders have been shocked by the scale of the breakdown between the formerly close friends, particularly as just three months ago, Mr. Pinner revealed he'd been part of the push for Oliver's final races to be in Perth. He was quoted on Tab Radio in this article. I was really pleased. This is Neil Pinner talking. I was really pleased about him coming back. 
we pushed hard to make sure he does have his last lot of racing here. And I think it's just going to be such a carnival, Mr. Pinner told Tub Radio that morning. You want to get your tickets early, I'd suggest. When approached, Mr. Percy, who's representing Damien Oliver, confirmed he was representing Damien Oliver, but said he was unable to comment beyond that. Mr. Pinner also has legal representation from Perth Barrister and Solicitor, Carol Smitty-Brown, a renowned business figure in his day. Mr. Pinner spent almost two decades at the Commonwealth Bank before co-founding Mortgage Force Australia. Through his business success and racing interest, Mr. Pinner rubbed shoulders with some of WA's most influential and he became influential himself when he was appointed a board member and then chairman of Perth Racing back in 2016. He was also on the board, of course, with the West Coast Eagles Supremo, Trevor Nisbet. Then in 2019, he was one of five members of the Thoroughbred Racing Committee who quit over what they claim was the state government's divisive approach to the sale of the tab. But he stayed very close to racing, and in recent times, he had been a prominent as an owner, in 2014, he owned the Group 1 winning man, um, Ali Kassam, with former Waffle and VFL star Tony Bahaja. And in 2019, he was the co-owner of the Melbourne Cup runner, Rostrovovich. Uh, he also was one of several owners of the elite gelding Eduardo, who amassed more than $7 million in prize money uh, before be retiring to start this year. Records also show that Mr. Pinner's business interests, including that with Mr. Oliver, have recently moved to an address in Perth in Dyer. His previous business address in Inglewood was sold in August for $1.6 million and another property linked to the family, a luxury four-bedroom waterside home um, just outside of Rockingham, is currently on the market for $859,000. The West Australian sent questions to Mr. Pinner through his lawyer about his current relationship with Mr. Oliver, a spokesperson for Racing Wagering WA, declined to comment when contacted. This will be a massive story, Brett. It is breaking, and I think there's still a lot more to come. Yeah, I mean, I think what what we're talking here is probably tip of the iceberg stuff. I mean, a lot of the details around the breakdown of the relationship are, are significant enough, and and obviously it's it's extremely topical with Ollie retiring on the weekend. Um, there's a lot more to come come to this. Uh, I think it'll play out pretty publicly. Uh, I think probably, you know, we'll, we'll see how, how it plays out, but it sounds like it's going to go through the courts. Um, it could get fairly, uh, it sounds like it could get fairly uh, heated and, and, and disputed. Um, it's, yeah, it, it will be a significant story. I, I mean, I think, yeah, I guess you hear in this business, you hear bits and pieces of rumours and, and things flying around for ages and you don't you don't report on rumours. You go and research if they're true and you work through them and the Western Australian has obviously done their uh, due diligence in that regard and, and got this story to a point where they were sort of fit, happy enough to publish it where, where it was. And I think it sort of sets the scene for what may come next year. Um, yeah, and, and it's an extraordinary postscript to you know, what was an absolutely amazing day at you know, Ascot on, on Saturday when Ollie won yeah. his last race. So it's racing. Racing never stops uh, providing drama and this will be another dramatic turn in the extraordinary career of Damien Oliver. I think it shocked everyone. I know Neil Pinner and Neil Pinner has been involved since I've been in racing media. I spent a lot of time in Perth and he was the chairman of Perth Racing at that particular time. And I think it's shocked everybody in a way that this has happened because his absence was alarming over the last couple of weeks, especially the last week there heading into Damien Oliver's final race day because Neil Pinner was like a father figure to Damien Oliver. They were basically a combination and worked together from day one since Damien kicked off his career. And as that article reported, he was with Damien Oliver through his toughest time when he lost his brother, Jason, in 2002. 
and he had been part of the, the Oliver family in a way. And uh, this is a situation now that has, I think, shocked everybody in the racing world. And there's a lot of rumours filtering around and in, in, in why they have had that split. And I guess that'll all come out in the next, who knows how long, but eventually it'll come out because obviously when they are both seeking legal representation, Tom Percy's probably the biggest legal man, especially when it comes to this in WA, that there is something that's pretty serious behind all of these, these rumors, Brent. So, and it's sad to see, it is really sad to see this because Damien Oliver has been a great stalwart for, for the industry. We all know that. And he had that magical day there on Saturday. Neil Pinner played an important part and he was still playing an important part in the racing industry both as a consultant, as an owner and a former chairman of Perth Racing. So it is just an ugly situation for racing, especially in WA. And uh, when any of these stories break, um, it'll get people talking and talking for a long time. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, Damien Oliver's always been probably, you know, if not the most high-profile jockey in Australia, certainly the top one or two for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, anytime anything happens around Ollie, there's always rumours and, and, and things going on. There's, it's, just, it's just the nature of being a high-profile um, athlete of, his, of that nature. I, I think it, it probably speaks to the difficult nature of relationships where you've got a long career, you've got a lot of uh, success for Damien over the years, and you've got people... Uh, people managing their their affairs and working things through and all that sort of stuff. There's a, it's 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 complex. Uh, I think it'll. I said I think it'll play itself mm-hmm. out rather publicly going forward. And um, look, I, I we'll, yeah, we'll see what happens in terms of Damien's legacy. He's got an amazing legacy to the uh, to the to the sport and what he's been able to achieve. Um, these postscripts sometimes tend to play out after people retire. Probably the benefit maybe is that this didn't this story didn't get out last Friday. It got out Wednesday. So people got to enjoy the, and Damien got to enjoy Saturday for what it was, which was an extraordinary moment. Um, we move now onto the next part of his career. And, yeah. and I guess the next part of his career is going to start with this unfortunate falling out with a man that's been by his side all the, all the way through. I think this was even more, makes his, his final day even more remarkable because obviously Ollie would have had a lot going through his mind, a lot of stress heading towards his final day of racing with this story breaking, of course, last night in the Western Australian. So obviously it's been going on for a little while now in preparation for his final day of race riding with his fall, falling out with his long-term manager in, in Neil Pinner. So um, Ollie's been able to put that aside for that day and to perform like he did was even more remarkable. So we'll see what happens and um, it'll be interesting to see what happens next with this situation. So it will be a big story, I think, not only at the back end of 2023, Bren, but it might be the story that has everybody talking, I think, especially kick-starting 2024. Yeah, and that's the nature, that's yeah. the nature of the game, I suppose. Things move on, news moves on, and um, yeah, I think Ollie will, Ollie's post-career, post-career stouches or post-career uh, uh, challenges will, will now sort of you know, come to the fore. I don't know about you, but he was definitely in my top five anyway, Damien Oliver's retirement. It was one of the biggest stories of the year when he announced it mid-year, and I was glad that he did, when he, when he did announce his retirement, I thought it was fitting that, because he's the greatest of all time and what he's been able to achieve in the sport, I, th- I thought he, he, he got it right um, by announcing his retirement just before the spring carnival, which allowed everybody, especially in Melbourne, and it didn't matter what racetrack, whether it be during his final Caulfield carnival, his final Cox Plate carnival, and then 
his final Melbourne Cup carnival. It gave everybody an opportunity to to say goodbye to Ollie, to go and watch him ride for the final time. And then, of course, it was the perfect send-off there for the final day of the Pinnacles. And even though Ollie, he was struggling a little bit during the Pinnacles, I think he had 13 rides for just the two placings before he went bang, 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 or like Dee McCauley like to say, gold, gold, gold in his final three races. And it was... It was amazing how that universe worked. Divine Belief was his first winner for David Harrison and he needed a little bit of, um, as Brittany Taylor said in her beautiful tribute to Ollie yesterday, divine intervention for Ollie to get his first winner, which just ignited the crowd. And then they tell me the buzz around Ascot was electric and then his great mate SJ Miller was able to produce him a winner with Magnificent Andy and SJ was the champion rider in the West that finished second to Ollie when Ollie rode his first winner as a teenager in WA, and then he's right on Munamek. You just had to see it to believe it. It was quite remarkable what unfolded there at Ascot. And I've had a lot of people um, get in contact with me over the last 48 hours, and some of the biggest names in Perth as well um, that have um, been to Ascot for a long, long time, and some of the sporting stars saying it was clearly one of the best sporting events that they've ever been to. There might have been only eight or 9,000 people there, but it felt like there was 50,000 like the day of Kingston Town when he rocked up to Ascot in 1982. It was just a feeling that I think people walked away from that racetrack and they can tell their kids and their grandkids that they were there when Damien Oliver said goodbye, the greatest of all time. Yeah, I mean, he, he's what has made Ollie remarkable is not the fact that, I mean, he's ridden 129 Group 1 winners, which is an extraordinary record in itself, but it's that he's been the man for the moment. And that when the pressures come on him and, and, and the spotlights come on him, he's been able to deliver no, no more so than that famous Melbourne Cup win. But Saturday was extraordinary because, again, it wasn't like he was on a dollar fifty pop that got an easy run and just you know dropped off the back of the leader and got home. He had There was times during that ride on Munimek, you thought, oh, look out, what's going on here? Like, it wasn't mm-hmm. a, a comfortable ride for him. And for him to be able to sort of weave his way through um, and, and sort of, you know, find, find the gap and, I guess, courage tired career to go, all right, I'm going to pick that spot and I'm going to hit it and I'm going to build up the momentum and I'm going to, I'm going to grab the front. It was an extraordinary moment, mm. uh, a great moment in racing um, and a fitting farewell to, to, a, to someone who has had an amazing impact. Like, yeah, you know, I was thinking back through it. I, you know, I'm, I'm mid-40s, right? I was thinking about, there's barely been a time in my life as a racing fan where I can't remember Damien, Damien Oliver being on the big stage. Yeah. And, and that longevity is extraordinary when you think about it. When you think about it, right, his first group one winner in 1990. For me, I was in year seven. Um, um, when you think about all the way through, all the way that great, amazing journey he's had through, the ups and the downs along the way. Um, I mean, he's he's ridden, you know, he's ridden some amazing horses as well. He's got an unbelievable record for riding great horses. But he's produced moments. And Ollie, will, that moment was... <laughs> I mean, it's hard to believe the Melbourne Cup moment. It won't be trumped because it was an extraordinary no. moment. But, gee, Saturday was huge, wasn't it? Yeah, and when I think about, for me, I'm a lover of three the three racing codes. And I think on Saturday afternoon slash night, for us racing fans, and no matter what code that you follow, it will be a day slash night that we'll never forget. Like, it started with Leap to Fame, who delivered that performance that, really divines logic, let alone belief in that inter-dominion pacing final, how quick these standardbreds can go now. And he smashed the world record at Albion Park in front of a, a home crowd that transcended the sport definitely in that state. Harness racing took centre stage and leaped the fame, led the ways. The, the, the local hero for the famous Dixon family had been dreaming of this moment 
for decades. Bill Dixon was a legend of the game and Grant and Trista Dixon have been the superstars of the sport for so many years. But on Saturday night, they lived their dream by winning the sports holy grail. And then Just Believe, who dominated his rivals once again, he quickly followed to win his second Inter-Dominion Trotters final. And it's now, it's hard not to believe that he could go anywhere in the world and mix it with the very best Trotters. And I don't know if he will, but I'd love to see him go back to Sweden to represent Australia in the elite lot. And then we, we came to Ollie. Straight after that, uh, um, across there at Ascot, Nolly, as we just pointed out, he was. It wasn't going to be the farewell that we thought he deserved. It, it was. You were thinking there midway through that meeting. As I said, he had 13 rides for just the two placings throughout the Pinnacles, and you thought, "Geez, this might not be the send-off that we thought might be happening for Ollie." And then all of a sudden, he flicked the switch and defined belief, which I think was an appropriate name for a horse to win Ollie's first race during the Pinnacles and then Magnificent Andy and that story with SJ Miller and then Munamek and the call from Dee McCauley, even though he didn't really pick up Munamek, the way that he picked him up, picked that horse up in the end and his call in the last 100 metres will be famous and it will be ringing in our heads for decades to come. And then the dog named after the horse that Ollie had the most success at with a group one level in Scalacci, would you believe, for a, a pizza owner. Jihad Telji, who was the outsider in the world's richest greyhound race worth $1.65 million, hadn't been jumping at all throughout the, the Dream Chasers Festival. And everyone thought that geez, he, he forgot how to jump. And he's got no chance against the, the world's best greyhounds. And from nowhere, he jumps straight to the front and leads them a merry dance. And those, those, that interview after the race there with James Vandermart is something that will live with me forever the emotion and from Talgin, how that particular performance would change his life forever. It was two or three hours of racing across the three codes that I think I'll, I've never experienced before. And it's a night and a day that I'll never forget, Bren. It was remarkable. Um, it truly was. Yeah, I mean, racing is a way to provide amazing moments. And often and, and often we have these moments where everything sort of... <laughs> You know, you know, you get a run of things, obviously yeah. got the run of Ollie's results. But yeah, I mean, it is it is great to be able to sort of witness that. And it gives you that sort of little kick that you feel when you're a kid. I always sort of feel that thing. It's almost like people used to say, you know, it's almost like you, you stand next to your dad at the race. You tag him on the on the mm. coat and you say, did you see that, dad? Did you see that, dad? That, when you get that feeling, that's that's what, that's what sport's about. Yeah. And that's what racing provides you know, in, in spades so many times. So many great stories. 0499736736. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back and finish off our top five stories of the year. The top five wagering stories, which is important after Victoria announced that they are teaming up once again with the, the tab with uh, their wagering deal, which was interesting. So the tab defeated Sportsbet in a duel for that license. So we'll discuss all of that and what it means for Victorian racing. And there's so many other different wagering stories that are unfolding in this, uh, in, in the in the sport of thoroughbred harness and greyhound racing that could, um, which will define, I think, the future for racing over the next decade, especially. And there's some big decisions that need to be made as well on that front. So we'll discuss all of that with Bren O'Brien from the straight.com.au publication straight after this. This is Giddy Up on this Wednesday morning. It's 25 minutes past eight. What about the other stories that have broken over the last 12 months there, Bren? Um, I think that the situation with the ATC selling roads here would have to be definitely in my top five. In fact, I thought that was the biggest story of the year. And it broke only in the last couple of weeks. Um, 
I think it was a situation by Racing New South Wales or the ATC that they put out the feelers in a way to say, okay, then what do you think if we sell Rose Hill? Um, and just to get some feedback in a way. And there's still a lot of water to go under the bridge. In fact, the story's died down a little bit since they did break it a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was one of those stories that, you know, sort of, I guess, came out of nowhere and came out very quickly. And the, the, the headline figure was probably the thing that, you know, put most people back on their feet, which was $5 mm. billion. There's a lot of, it's a lot of money. Um, and if that would flow through to the ATC, and that's the full realised value if they were develop that site, then they could do a lot with the rest of racing. The question is, do you sell your farm and you only get to sell the farm once? It was a, a, a huge story. I guess, as you said, the details aren't quite there. It's a memorandum of understanding with the state government, which in 12 months' time, they'll probably come back and have a contract on. So we'll know more about it then. The Rose Hill trainers are certainly you know, still trying to get their heads around it. Um, we spoke to David Payne yesterday, and he said he hasn't had any further consults talk or conversations the ATC, but what that means. Now, David Payne will probably retire by the time all this happens, but there's a few trainers out there that are sort of wondering what it means. And I think there's a few people in Sydney racing wondering why it, it why this needs to happen and why it's so desperate to happen, because if it does happen, you don't get it back. You don't get that prime piece mm. of land back in the middle of suburbia. And I guess it speaks to the broader challenges of where racing sits within you know, the, 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 the mainstream landscape and whether it gets relegated to the margins. And I think the big story breaking 2024 unfolding will be Peter Volandis and his status in the game. Obviously, he's had so much success as an administrator. He's upset a lot of people along the way as well. Um, he's done a wonderful job for New South Wales Racing, but the decision there or um, with Russell Boarding not getting his um, chairmanship extended for another couple of years really did um, tell everybody that there is a changing landscape maybe in the administration and the way that New South Wales racing is controlled. Yeah, it certainly was a, it was a, a rare loss for yep. PVL when uh, he would, they were forced to choose whether, whether uh, balding continues or they get more scrutiny of racing New South Wales and they end up, yeah, you know, it was a, quite a dramatic turnaround in the New South Wales Parliament to, to basically pull that bill, and now they're find, looking for a new chairman for racing New South Wales. Now they may find someone who's able to work very closely with PVL again and and realise further realise his goals. But I, I think what it unearthed was there is some significant resistance within the industry, particularly within the breeding sector, uh, for PVL's you know grand plans and what he wants to achieve within New South Wales. It was a it was a key moment, and as you said, it'd be really interesting to see how this plays out in 2024. What happens with this new chairman? And where things progress to, and and I guess whether yeah PVL's grand plan of big prize money, all that sort of stuff, can it continue in an era where we've got a, a dropping amount of wagering being returned? There's challenges to the business model of racing uh, ongoing, uh, and and where and what does the what does the new era look like? I suppose, mm. and I guess we'll find out in 2024. PVL is an extraordinarily adaptive human being. He can do some. He's done some amazing things with Sydney Racing already, but it's a very interesting time for him and in terms of where he wants to go. He's obviously got significant interest in, in rugby league as well. So there's a lot, 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 a lot of water to come under the bridge there. It'll be one of our top five wagering stories, but I'll, I'll ask you this question and it involves Peter Philandis. Do you reckon there'll be a time now that you'll have to make a decision between racing and rugby league? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I think the involvement with rugby league is, is, is quite significant and, and, and he's become a very much a figurehead for the driving of innovation and change in that space. Whether he can do it in two spaces has always been questionable, but he's done it pretty well to date. I guess it comes down to his preferences and where he wants to put his energy. Like if, if Peter Volandis could probably turn his hand to most things because he's a very determined, intelligent and, and smart 
um, man in terms of what, what he can achieve. But whether he wants to continue to sort of get dragged dragged into the world of racing politics and the world of rugby league politics, it's sort of up to him. I think he'll have a, he'll have both positions for as long as he wants to, to wants to have them. But the challenge will be whether he, he actually does want to do it longer term. I'll just give you an example then. So the the point of consumption, if sport go after some of the cash, the point of consumption, the tax generates and takes money away from racing, do you think that puts Peter Volandis in a really difficult spot regarding a conflict of interest as two sports fight for the same wagering dollar? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be an interesting challenge going forward because it will be it will possibly become a battleground. Yeah. What will enable to do, it will enable people to wedge PVL, and, and that's probably what he doesn't want to happen because they've pretty much been two separate and distinct entities to, to date. If he has to sort of become between two of them and there's conflicts of interest involved, then it enables people to wedge him. And his political opponents, of which there are a fair few, and more than we probably thought of six months ago, will be able to utilise that to say, hey, this guy can't do mm-hmm. both both sides of the game. And, and yeah, there are people out there that want to... That, 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 want to end the, the Peter Volandi's reign in, in New South Wales, and they will use what they can in order to to get there. And, and this may be one point. We, you know, it, it might be one sort of technical point that they might be able to wedge Volandi's on the fact that he can't be standing in both the rugby league camp and the racing camp at the same time. He could say, well, it's actually a positive that oh, I, I've got the, the sport's best interest in, in mind, both those sports, and um, I've got control over both organisations and I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure that everybody gets um, a fair hearing and I'm not going to go to war against um, each other regarding the the, the, the the two sports. So that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Just quickly with the other top five stories, I think that Jamie Carr's made headlines um, throughout the year and I think at the end of the day, she's had a pretty good end to the year. Um, she got – she she – got that case dropped or she won that case basically by putting the game into disrepute with that white powder saga. And then she was able to return to form after that serious race fall. And I said this before on the other SEM platforms, racing needs her and racing needs her to be um, performing well and enjoying the sport more importantly. And it looks like towards the back end of the year, she was able to do just that. An honourable mention as, as well to... Um, there's a couple of stories, the Giga Kick story, the controversy with Craig Williams uh, losing his right, that seemed to go on for a couple of weeks and it ignited debate amongst the industry and the racing fans. And also the Scotty Brunton situation, I think, in, in your state was huge. Um, and he, he, he delivered a really interesting letter to his owners saying that he basically owed uh, more than a million dollars to the taxation office and then he lost his license. And this is coming from a man that was a leading trainer in Tasmania for more than a decade, Bren. Yeah, I, I, Scotty gets the award for the quote of the year for mine when they, someone asked him about like well, how does a business get into a get into a state like that, and he said the only thing I passed, um, what did he say? The only thing I passed <laughs> at school was bus stops. Yes. That was his quote. And um, I think Scotty's a very honest, well, very open person, I suppose, about 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 what what he done. It was a it was a significant story down in Tassie because he was such a major player. You know, he's a yeah. leading trainer for the past decade, as you mentioned. Um, and there's a lot of other going on in other aspects of Tassie integrity at the moment, which is a um, yeah, major concern. You know, the leading harness uh, trainer is under investigation at the moment. The leading uh, Greyhound trainer got um, suspended for life. So there's a fair bit going on in the integrity yeah. space in Tassie. Scotty Brunton's departure. Look, I think the thing was is that Scotty Brunton was the feel-good story of the All-Star Mile. Correct, that, yeah. The doco about the All-Star Mile 
it, it was, I want to say, it, it, the key to it and the most exciting and interesting part of it was Scotty. Um, he's an extra, he's a, he's got he's a great character, but unfortunately, you know, it, it led to the fact that he he's um, you know, his business, I suppose, probably fell by the wayside in terms of his management of the business, and it, unfortunately, it, it's meant that he's unable to, to train anymore. And someone who is a clearly a very very talented horseman. Um, is, is 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 out of the game, and um, it's part yeah. of the way things work. If you don't can't run a proper business in this, in this game, you can't unfortunately continue to uh, continue to operate as a trainer. But um, Scotty's character is a huge loss to Tassie Racing, yeah. and I think it's a huge loss to Australian racing because yeah. people love that Larrikin character. They love that quintessential Australian racing character, and um, it, you know when we lose those people, we feel their we feel their loss. I suppose. Yeah, Scotty's a wonderful horseman, terrific trainer. Um... And he's made a lot of mistakes throughout his career, but hopefully he can get back to, to training once again and learn from his lessons. Welcome back to Giddy Up at Date 48. Bren O'Brien from thestraight.com.au, one of our leading journalists in the sport of racing, joins us here as he does every Wednesday. Bren, let's have a look at the top five wagering stories. And I guess one of them was um, the story that broke a few days back that Victoria's once again teamed up with Tab. Um, the Victorian government anyway, as the license holders for Victoria when it comes to their, their wagering license. Did that surprise you? They, it seemed reading the the reports there that they defeated Sportsbet in that fight for the Victorian wagering license. Well, I think, uh, Gareth, what we'll find is that there was, um, you know, it was always tab corpse to lose. Um, yeah. they, they were always in, in prime position being the incumbent. I guess the, probably, the only surprising aspect about it for me, I mean, Sportsbet put up a pretty good fight, but the only surprising aspect about it for me was that it was 20 years. Mm-hmm. That seemed a very, very long time. <laughs> like 20 years ago, just to put a bit of context in, 20 years ago, 75% of money on, in Australia on, on horse racing was spent, on, um, was spent through the tote. Uh, yeah. It's currently about 15%. So yeah. a lot has changed in the space of 20 years. So in 20 years' time, I don't know where we'll be with terms of uh, wagering and racing where things are set. So it's a, an extremely long-term deal. The, uh, the, the, the fine uh, details of it, I suppose, is that you know, the racing or the, the Victorian government gets $600 million up front and then $30 million a year ongoing with that. Now, it's a very different model to the previous, I guess, joint venture model. Now, that provided a diminishing amount of funding over time in, under the previous deal because of um, the the tote sort of declining yeah. and what was going on. But it was basically $130 million a year going back into Victorian thoroughbred racing and, and, and according to the other sports from there. So, um, yeah, if you look at that amount of money and you look at the $600 million up front is a you know, good whack of cash, but then the $30 million a year ongoing, well, there's a challenge there for the racing industry now to find uh, the gap. Some of that will be filled up by the point of consumption agreement that was sort of done last year. But I guess, you know, where the retail and tote model, parameutral model, sits going forward is a real question in the next few years. It is on its way, uh, it's probably, what, tote in particular is on its last legs. Look at the look at the numbers, it's not very very strong at all. Um, and the retail model, well, there's a question about where that sits longer term, yep. the, you know, the, the pubs, clubs and agencies that, you know, have been part of the Australian landscape for the last 60, 60 or so years. So I guess it'd be interesting to see what happens. Um, I, I, I think... Uh, there'll be a bit of a fight for the $600 million up front to see who gets that and how that works out. The Victorian government will be playing Santa Claus there, handing out mm-hmm. money as they see fit. And we'll just, um, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. But it was a big, it was a big decision and it sets a degree of what the future landscape looks like you know, for, for the next 20 years. And it's, a, it's an interesting one because the Victorian government will play a major part, as you pointed out. It's not basically done on results. So if Racing Victoria is making more money than GRV and then HRV, 
the, the government's got to make a decision where the money is allocated. Now, HRV probably won't have the the success regarding the turnover, say that the other codes have, but they still need a certain amount of money to to run their sport. Uh, run their sport. So there's probably strong possibility that greyhound racing, but it, uh, definitely thoroughbred racing, might be might be propping up the sport of harness racing, which will make it really interesting to see what the government does down the track because GRV and HRV are both under the government banner, basically under the constitution. Yeah, and I think I think the thing is to is to realise this six hundred million dollars too, Gareth. There's no guarantee the the government hand all of that on to, yeah. the, to the Victorian racing industry. They can do what they want. The response to the government after this announcement, which was a close to a billion dollar deal, was eight hundred sixty four million million dollars over the next twenty years. The response from the government uh, was very interesting in the fact that it spoke primarily about harm minimisation and the guarantees it sought for TabCorp around harm minimisation. Gambling has become a very, very, very politically toxic issue. Mm. Um, and so there's some real challenges there around the racing industry about where they sit and, 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 and how they, I guess, prosecute their case going forward for this funding. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back and final, um, complete our top five wagering stories. And then we've got our top five breeding stories still to come here on Giddy Up on this Wednesday morning. Welcome back to Giddy Up, Gareth Hall with you, Bren O'Brien, for our Wednesday debate. Bren, what are the other wagering stories? Maybe give us one more before the nine o'clock news that um, that you think have made your top five. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you one, and that's the major one, which will be 2024 as well, which is the wagering advertising reform. It's, it's yeah. a bit of a dry subject, I suppose, to talk about on a, on a racing show, but it has significant knock-on effects for the racing industry. There were 31 recommendations put forward as part of the You Win Some, You Lose More report put forward by a federal parliamentary committee this year. Um, the federal government is now currently considering those. Should they employ all of those, the uh, the the estimates of, 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 I guess, damage to the wagering industry by the wagering service providers is anything up to $800 million per year. From a racing perspective, it could be anything between $100 million and $300 million per year in revenue. That's a, a massive impact that could happen if all these um, recommendations come through. Primarily, it's around about the banning of advertising, and also the banning of promotions, the free bets, all those type of things that we've become used to in the in the corporate bookmaker era. So it's it's been a, it, it'll be a really interesting story to see how that plays out. Um, what the federal government chooses to do, there's been a lot of lobbying, including a lot of people from within the racing industry yeah. lobbying the federal government to get changes here. Again, it sounds like a bit of a dry story, but it has a massive impact mm-hmm. for what the corporate bookmaker landscape will look forward. Yeah, you know, look look to be going forward. With when, when will that decision? Got about twenty seconds. When will that decision come through? I'm expecting early, early 2024. Okay. It's probably February, I would yeah. say, Gareth, to be perfectly honest. And, and, and who knows, with the federal government, they may decide to land, but I was, I'm expecting probably February. Yeah, it will be interesting. It's going to be a big year in the wagering landscape. There's no doubt about that in 2024. We'll take the 9 o'clock news and we'll come back with plenty more on Giddy Up. Thanks to Bet365, the world's favourite online betting brand. What's gambling really costing you? For free and confidential support. Visit gamblinghelponline.org.au. Welcome back to Getty Up. Three minutes past nine. Bren O'Brien with us, of course, from thestraight.com.au. A little bit different with the Wednesday debate. Just going through our our top five stories of the year in certain categories in the sport of um, racing. Just with the wagering stories, the top five wagering stories. We've touched on Victoria's wagering license that Tab picked up there for another 20 years. That story broke a couple of days ago. Obviously, with the advertising laws that... We'll find out a little bit more in the early part of 2024. What other the major wagering stories this year in your eyes, Brendan? I guess um, turnover and t- turnover is probably the, the big thing, the, the decline in, in wagering across the year and how the industry 
you know, whether it be the rice industry or the or the wagering industry responds to that going forward, be really interesting. Um, yeah, the COVID booms over, the pandemic yeah. booms over, the money has you know we've dropped off record levels, and now we have to negotiate a new future where the amount of money coming through, uh, and that's also been impacted by a sort of secondary factor, which is the rise in taxation as well. Victoria goes to a 15% point of consumption tax from middle of of uh, from sorry June next year, middle of the year next year, and that will have a significant effect on wagering as well because I, I think you know it gets to a point where as margins increase the amount of money that can be spent on punting becomes a bit more difficult for people so i think that's probably a really interesting story from this year um yeah i just want to point to a couple of stories from next year at least one story from next year which will be interesting will be now we've got the victorian tab sort of sorted out the also yeah. the new zealand tab sorted out what goes on in WA? Um, yes. That's a really interesting question. And the WA tab deal, it's been off again, off again, on again. It's been on the market, off the market. Uh, Bet R were poised to swoop in and get it sort of um, late last year. And then that sort of fell over at the last moment. Um, now we've got probably uh, Entain, probably the leading candidate there, but Tabcorp and possibly Sportsbet also in the mix. Um, so the WA tab will be really interesting because it's the last state-owned TAB. And that will change the nature of the Australian yeah. landscape if Tabcorp don't get it because it'll be the only state where there'll be another another corporate, I suppose, involved at that level. Would you completely rule out Matt Tripp for making another bid there? I, I would given Matt Tripp's record, I wouldn't rule him out with anything. He uh Ben Arbrand obviously been really quiet this year. Obviously there's been discussions about whether they're being sold and other issues around things are going on, but it wouldn't it wouldn't completely surprise me with anything. I guess the only thing with the WA deal is because they got to the Yalta once before and it fell apart. I would think probably WA might be a little bit gun-shy about going back there again. And I think what Entain, the deal Entain did in New Zealand has opened the eyes to a lot of other uh, people to go, okay, you can actually do a very different type of deal, a long-term deal, which will enable things to happen. So I think that's definitely a story worth worth watching next year. And I think that will change the way that, um, yeah, it could be a changing face in the Australian landscape. Yeah, I'm thinking that maybe... Sports bet might want to play a major role as well, trying to get into that landscape. Maybe it's WA. I think they're interested with SA as well. So there's plenty to unfold there in the, the wagering landscape. And it'll be interesting because I think getting a tote for Entain or sports bet would be big for their business. Um, and I don't know if I had a dream list when it came to administration in, in the wagering landscape, I'd love to see Matty Tripp, the, the chairman of Tabcorp, um, I think that would be interesting for everybody involved. So anyway, um, it changes all of the time, mate. I was involved a little bit like with the WA tab, it's, it was going to be sold and it wasn't. And then Entain were going to buy it, Bet R were going to buy it, the tab were going to buy it. And then the problem is, is the government doesn't think that it is, and it depends who they're getting consulted with and that can change opinions all of the time. And I think that at the end of the day as well is that sometimes, and this is no, this not having a crack at governments, but some of the, the people who are making the decisions just don't know gambling or don't know the, the wagering landscape. So it's really difficult for them to come to a, such an important decision that can shape people's lives for, for years to come. Well, the problem is with uh, is long-term thinking and you know, doing long-term deals in a uh, in a short-term uh, electoral environment. Yeah. When you're thinking about, like, as a politician, you're thinking in three to four-year cycles, and you're talking about doing 20-year deals. So it's very hard. And this is very much a case you only get to sell the farm once. 
the WA tab wants the best deal possible. Uh, sorry, the WA wants the best, WA government wants the best deal possible for their tab. Um, whether the current market environment gives that to them is probably uh, questionable, but at some stage, it's going to be a deal they can't refuse. And it'll yep. be very interesting to see how this plays out. And it'll be interesting as well. This is the final one with the, uh, the wagering stories is how the, the landscape sets up regarding the smaller bookmakers as well. Yep. Um, whether they'll probably get, it's just be too much for them with all the taxes and the point of consumption tax and the bigger boys just eat them up, not necessarily eat them up, but just basically don't allow them to be in the market because it's too saturated in a way well, and well, they can't compete with them. The Australian market's obviously very dominated by the big boys, you know, Ladbrokes, yep. uh, Sportsbet and, 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 uh, and Tap. Uh, points bet's probably the next level, about 5% market share. But then once you go below that, there's a lot of players. There's probably a couple of sort of next level players, but a lot of very low sort of players that have set themselves up. We just lost you there, mate, a little bit. We just lost Bren there. So he might have muted himself. So you there, mate? We, you might have muted yourself. We just lost your audio. So we'll see if we can fix that. Um, that will be interesting to see what happens there in the wagering landscape with the smaller bookmakers. Um, there's probably too many of them. And that was uh, an injection with so many bookmakers during the COVID period. Um, but now you think that there, there's too many uh, of them. So the, um, unfortunately, from a business point of view, they just won't be able to survive. Um, so we'll see how that eventuates as well. Um, I think we've got him on the line now. Is he ready to go? We'll get him back in, in just Sorry, a minute. Oh, you got me yeah, we've got you now, mate. Sorry. Hey, you're halfway through explaining what was going on regarding the bookmakers. Yeah, I just talked about the small time the small yeah. time bookmakers, I suppose, and where they sit. So I guess the question is, uh, those small guys, how they can sustain sort of, I guess, long-term growth and where things sit for them, I think. Uh, there's been an explosion of those amount of bookmakers. I think it's you know, something from 20 to about 130 mm -hmm. or something. So there's probably going to be a bit of a reckoning for those guys, and, and things are probably going to, um, you know, there's probably going to be a few of them swept up. But also you talk about this, anyway, it's a technical point, but the the way that point of consumption and turnover taxes and all mm -hmm. these things work, uh, if they can stay behind, below a certain limit, then they don't have to pay those taxes. So there's an incentive for them to stay at a certain size. Yep. So that's probably why they've, they've sort of grown in the first place. But whether that's sustainable, and as we've seen with a few other issues around the, around the traps with these smaller bookmakers, whether that's desirable for the industry and whether it represents an integrity risk is another uh, is another challenge. So I think what we'll probably see is a consolidation of those guys in the next 12, 12 months or so. Um, however, the last 12 months has seen significant growth. So uh, it may be the case that things just sort of even out and then drop off from there. And just the last one before we, we let you go, mate, the top five breeding stories you delivered those in your publication, thestraight.com.au recently. Um, just run through them quickly, mate. I'm fascinated to hear them once again. Well, number one's Yulong, because yes. Yulong's had a massive, uh, yeah, obviously a massive year, bought every every good mare in the market, uh, enormous expansion. They've recruited Vin Cox as their, as their, uh, their, their general manager, which is a massive story as well. Uh, yeah, they're just getting bigger and bigger. I want to put another one on the radar here, which yep. is one we reported during the week. Um, Zoostar. Is now the most well. He will be the most prolific winning sire in the world in 2023. He'll have more winners than the other sire in the world. That's a great achievement yes. for an Australian stallion to be able to do that. And he's been unable to do that, able to do that because of um, his UK crops coming through. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the crops conceived over there, which has given him bigger numbers. But he's had 200, 
Oh, that's a couple of days ago, 277 winners, which is more than Lord Canalola, who's second. That's a great achievement from an Australian-based sire, uh, Australian-bred sire. Um, yeah, and, and that's a terrific effort. Um, Godolphin, how they move on from the Vincox era will be fascinating to see what happens. Um, it's obviously been a big story. They've been a big story for a long time, but I guess they're in a new era now, and what happens yeah. is fascinating. Um, John Singleton selling out of Strawberry Hills and selling out of breeding is a really interesting story. Obviously, those horses were were purchased primarily by Yulong. Those horses were purchased um, that were there, but also the property was purchased by Tom Magna, who set it up as a as a as a sort of a a, a different facility now. But um, Singo has obviously been a massive figure in Australian bloodstock for a very long time. He's effectively ex exited out of the industry with the exception of a few small interests. Um, yeah, and I guess the other bloodstock story is the market and where it goes. It has been a bit up and down. Um, certainly started off very strongly at Magic Millions on the Gold Coast, but then was a few battles throughout the year. The two-year-old market in Australia really struggled. And then we moved on to the, um, you know, the New Zealand two-year-old sale was fantastic and had a great result. So the market is a bit up and down. What it does mm -hmm. in 2024 will be closely watched. And um, yeah, and, and, and Magic Millions next year will be, I'm sorry, next month will be a fascinating watch. Yeah, it was interesting with the ready-to-run sale in New Zealand be, being so strong, despite what's been happening in the, the world regarding the economics. So it defied the trend once again, a horse sale, which it often does. But um, yeah, the magic millions will be interesting, especially that middle market. Hey, Bren, you're a star. You'll be a major part of our family next year. Have a wonderful Christmas and New Year as well. And um, yeah, we'll catch you on the Gold Coast, mate. Yep. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Gareth. There's Bren O'Brien from thestraight.com.au. Subscribe to thestraight.com.au. Independent um, racing news. And he's doing a wonderful job, Bren, with his team.